Hello friends, and thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon from Spring Hill Baptist Church in Millport, Alabama. We're currently working through the Gospel of John in our sermon series entitled, That You May Have Life. Our prayer is that this time in God's Word would be edifying for you. God bless. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to the book of John. John chapter 20 is where we're going to be this morning. John chapter 20. We're just going to look at two verses, uh, verses 30 and 31, which you may be thinking, uh uh-oh, do we have a short sermon on our hands? I wouldn't count on it, okay? No, I say that just kidding. This sermon's going to be a little bit different, and I'll explain what I mean by that in just a moment. Over the, the Christmas break, I, I got the chance to spend a lot of time with, uh, with my family, my side of the family, which uh, obviously is a, is a real blessing. Um, my family, much like me, likes uh, movies and, and TV shows that you binge and stuff like that. And I got to, uh, to watch my favorite Christmas movie with them, Home Alone. Okay, it's the best. I don't, it doesn't matter your opinion on this, okay? It's the best. Uh, no, I love the movie Home Alone. We, we watched a lot of different things and enjoyed one another's company. I was reminded uh, in doing so, have you ever watched a movie or watched a TV show with someone that's not paying attention or they're on their phone or something like that and uh, I saw some, some husbands nudging their wives. I hope that I didn't cause a marital conflict just now. Uh, but you know what I mean. They ask a bunch of questions because the events don't make sense. No, no, hold a second. Does, who is that character? Do they? And you're like, well, if you weren't on Facebook a minute ago, you'd know exactly who that character was, right? You know, you know what I'm talking about? Amen. There you go. Uh, they ask a bunch of questions and the events don't make sense. Well, that's obvious because they should have been paying attention from the beginning. And that's what you tell them. Well, if you would have been paying attention, you wouldn't be having this conversation. And now I'm missing points that I want to listen to. And anyway... Stop nudging your wife, okay? It doesn't matter. Uh, Listen, the reason I say that is that uh, although movies are like that and books are like that, the Bible is also like that. The Bible's like that. Uh, You know, it's it's silly to think that you can jump into the middle of a story and understand the story for all of its worth, right? It doesn't make any sense to do that. The book of John is like that. There are things about the book of John that in order to cherish them completely and have a great understanding of them, we have to know the story that is anticipating John, Jesus' life. We have to know the story up until this point. Now the reason I say that is because this sermon is going to be a little bit different. We're only looking at two verses. And usually what we would do on a Sunday morning is that I would take the next passage in the line in the book of John. And then it would be 8 to 15 or so verses. And we would walk through uh, that passage together, line by line, verse by verse. And expose the meaning of that passage. And then maybe illustrate it in a certain way. And then apply it to our lives. And we're going to do that again this morning But it's only two verses. And so what's going to happen is that these verses are so loaded with good things, but it's going to require a bit more of a full biblical approach to understanding really the meaning and the weight of what John is communicating. It's a small sample, but we're going to bring it a whole Bible approach. You know, the book of John is aimed to tell readers something. It's aimed to tell readers who Jesus was. A more complete look at who Jesus came to be and remains being. And that's what we're going to do this morning. So let's look at it. John 20 verses 30 and 31. Like I said, very short, but let's see what the Lord has for us. John 20 verses 30 and 31 says this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. (coughs) But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his 
name. Now, I want you to look at something, okay? There's a chapter that follows this chapter in the book of John. It's the 21st chapter. And I know that that chapter is there. But I'm going to tell you something. And we kind of talked about this last week. That the book of John sort of ends with the 31st verse that we just read. It sort of ends right here. I mean, doesn't it read like a conclusion? He says, I've written all these things down for a purpose. The reason is that you believe. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life. The end. It's a good ending, isn't it? But there's another chapter. And so I want to explain kind of why this is happening and why it's like this. We talked about this last week at the end of the message. That if you go back and look at the first chapter of John, verses 1 through 18, it's written like a prologue. And I know that not everyone in this room is a reader, but if you were to pick up a, a novel or even a, 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 theolo- a theology book or something like that, or even a secular book, it doesn't matter, a lot of them have a prologue. It's a beginning. And most of the time, you skip the prologue. Because the prologue tells you what's going to, what you're going to read in the next pages. And you're thinking, I don't need to read the prologue because I'm going to read the book. But the prologue's important because the prologue sets the stage. It's a summary of everything that you're about to read. And so it gives you an idea in your head of some of the things that you're about to read. And that's what John did. In the first 18 verses, he says essentially, here's the prologue. Jesus has authority over all creation. He is Lord. He's also God. He's God made flesh. He's the Word made flesh. And he is Christ. And we saw that in the prologue. But then the next section of the book of John, if you were to skip the prologue, tells you exactly what the prologue tells you. It says that Jesus is Lord and that Jesus is God. It's a narrative support of the prologue. And so the way that John structures this and that Jesus accomplished this is by demonstrating signs. Things that he accomplished. Things that he did to support that prologue. I'm Lord. I am God. And I said that this is sort of the end of John because... Like any book you would read, there would be a chapter at the end that would be a chapter of conclusion. And what happens in the conclusion? It summarizes the narrative support that you just read, right? You have the prologue, then you have the meat, and then the conclusion essentially restates the prologue. And that's exactly what John does. It says, I've written these things down, once again, to tell you that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And yet, there's a 21st chapter. We're going to look at that starting next week. But that 21st chapter, just like a lot of books that you would read, is an epilogue. It's essentially a trailing off for what comes next. But the substance of the book of John finishes right here in this verse. Even though there's more to come. Look at verse 30. I'm going to explain a couple of things as we kind of walk through it. And by the way, if you're taking notes, we'll get to the outline in just a few moments, okay? It's sort of on the back end of our message, but I need to set up some things before we get there, okay? It'll be on the screen, but we'll get there in a minute. Verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Okay, so Jesus accomplished things. He did signs. Signs are indicators. They point to something. They're not just signs in and of themselves. We have signs in our day and age. You have a stop sign. And you're not supposed to drive up to a stop sign and say, huh, that's a cool looking sign as you just drive past it, right? That's not the point of a stop sign. A sign is an indicator. It tells you to do something and a stop sign tells you to stop. That's the point of the sign. We have other signs. If you're driving on the interstate and you see the one that says food, the blue sign, and you see a Chick-fil-A logo on the interstate, you wouldn't just say, huh, that's a cool looking sign. I like the Chick-fil-A logo. No, you'd say, okay, there's a Chick-fil-A on the side of the road. If I were to want that, I can just pull over into this exit. The same thing if you were to see a road work sign on the road, you would say, huh, 
That's a cool looking sign. No, you'd say I need to be cautious in my driving. The reason I say that is to say that signs are indicators. And biblical signs are the exact same way. They're indicators of something. Jesus didn't just perform miracles so that people would say, huh, he can turn water to wine. No, he did it for a purpose, an indicator of something. These indicators were demonstrations of Jesus' actual identity. So yes, we see that in the main meat of the book of John. That in chapter 2, he did turn water into wine. Also in chapter 2, it tells us he did many signs in Jerusalem. In chapter 4, he healed an official's son from afar. In chapter 5, he healed a paralytic. In chapter 6, he fed multitudes, 5,000 men, including women and children additionally. He also, in chapter 9, healed a man born blind, which had never been done before. He raised Lazarus in chapter 11. And in the grand finale... The big one is that he accomplished salvation on Calvary and he resurrected himself. He didn't just do that so people would say, huh, that guy came back from the dead. He did it as an indicator, as a sign that he's exactly who John had been saying that he is. He's the Christ. He is the Son of God. But according to verse 30, he did many, many more signs. In fact, look at chapter 21, verse 25 you probably know this verse, the very last verse, right, of the book of John. It says, Now there are also many other things that Jesus did, were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Jesus did a lot of stuff, y'all. But John selected these things for a purpose. He believes that he has proven his objective in introducing many signs, with witnesses, by the way, which we saw in verse 30. Disciples saw these things occur, and Jesus did them. But he selected the ones he did for a purpose. Look at verse 31. But these are written <clears throat> so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now, chapter or verse 30 and 31 are a little bit strange. In the English language, you read verse 30, and it just says, now Jesus did. Okay, it's just kind of like a, no, guess what? Now Jesus did these things. But in the original language, it reads a little bit differently. It's a continuation word. That word now is maybe more appropriately translated therefore. So it, it connects to what came right before it. Look at verse 29. We looked at this last week. Or verse 28 even. That Thomas saw the resurrected Jesus and answered him, My Lord and my God. And then Jesus said to him, notice that this, again, it transitions to verse 30. It says, he said to them, said to him in verse 29, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did. Okay? So the way that this reads is like this. Those who have not seen the risen Christ and yet have believed are blessed. Therefore, this book has been composed with the hope that you may believe. Just like Thomas did. That you would make that confession. You see, when John penned these words, in his mind, listen, he wasn't writing a religious textbook. You know that. When John wrote these things down, he didn't realize he was writing a religious textbook. He was writing an earnest plea to a desperate audience. Who was the audience? This audience that John is writing these things to are mostly non-believing Jews, although obviously Christians will get their hands on it and read and be encouraged. But he's writing to mostly non-believing Jewish people. But the same people that were chanting, crucify him. They were people that were of the, the religion of Judaism, as well as also some Gentile converts to Judaism, no doubt. 
People that feared God but had not trusted in Jesus as Messiah, as Christ, as Lord and Savior. That's the audience. Unbelievers. Please believe, he is saying. What's his plea? His plea is that you may trust in the Galilean man, Jesus, as Christ. You know, the question, if you were a Jewish person, or even a Gentile person converted to Judaism in the first century, you would be very interested in that question. Just who is the Christ? Just who is the Messiah? It's a question that had been on this audience's hearts for hundreds of years, even thousands the reason that this is such a peculiar question to them is that the category of Christ was an important category to them. You know the way that your ears may perk up if you overhear a conversation about uh, the, the abortion debate, or pro-life and pro-choice. You hear maybe that uh, someone's having that conversation, your ears may perk up a little bit. You know why? Because that probably interests you just a tad. Kind of the same way if someone, if I hear someone say, you know we're expecting tornadic weather in Lamar County. You know what I would do? What? We're expecting some bad weather. That interests me, you know, because I, I live in Lamar County. So we would maybe be a little interested in that nature of conversation. Something that around your interest perks up your ears. Last night I was watching the football game that was ended real late. Uh, the Clemson won. If you I hope I didn't spoil that if you recorded it. Bummer. Bad news at church, right? Sorry. So Dabo Sweeney, I love this guy, the coach for Clemson. At the end of the game, man, he always says the same things, and it's beautiful because I can tell that it seems to me at least to be sincere. He said, all glory goes to God. He talked about the amazing favor of God on his football team. God don't care about football, but he cares that Dabo Sweeney loves Jesus. And so when he says, all glory to God, thankful for, the God, for God's favor, me as a, as a pastor and as a Christian, my ears park up a little bit, and I'm like, man, that's good. Because I care about those things. It kind of fits my interests. The reason I say that is that readers of John would be intrigued by these verses, really verse 31 explicitly, that John has just written down. Because John has assessed to Jesus the identity of Christ. This is significant for a first century Jewish person. And John knew that. So reread this verse 31 and see why it is so loud and bold. Look at 31 again. These things are written so that, listen, to an unbelieving Jewish man, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that you would believe in that guy. That's a weighty statement to a people group that have been longing for the Christ for generations. Jesus is the Christ. No doubt, John's main goal in writing this gospel is evangelism. And man, it's been effective, hasn't it? But it doesn't change the fact that this book has accomplished and does accomplish much more than just evangelism. It instructs, it edifies, it comforts us. Early Christians certainly, but also us. And the, the reader, he's instructing them, believe, whether once in salvation or every day in sanctification, that Jesus is the Christ. And so we're going to anchor right there what it means to believe that Jesus is the Christ. You know, Christ wasn't Jesus' last name, where you'd look him up in the yellow pages in the phone book, um, C-H-R, Christ, comma, Jesus. Or it wasn't like on his mailbox. It's not his last name. It's more than just a surname. Christ was his identity. It's who he was. So when you read that word Christ, I want to explain what that means. <coughs> the word Christ 
is simply the Greek translation of a, of a Hebrew word called Messiah. It's the same word. So when you read about the Messiah, you're reading about the Christ. And when you're reading about the Christ, you're reading about the Messiah. It's the same word having the same definition. And the definition is simply the anointed one. He is the anointed one. The set apart one. Set apart specifically for a task or for a purpose. Christ, Messiah, same word, Greek, Hebrew, the anointed one that's set apart for a task or purpose. We sort of have a, a it's not a perfect analogy, but we sort of have a, a setting apart sort of anointing even in our culture for positions. We have, uh, we, we have these cultural swearing-ins, uh, like, a, like a setting apart service for people like judges. And they will say, you know, they place their hand on the Bible and raise their hand and they say, I will uh, administer justice perfectly. I will be a man of justice. I'm, you're sort of setting me apart, anointing me for the purpose of being a judge of justice. We do the same thing for those who practice medicine. Physicians, they do the same thing. They have a swearing in and they say, I will practice medicine honestly. They're being sort of kind of anointed or set apart for a purpose. Governing officials do the same thing. They take an oath of a governing official taking office. Why do we do this? Because they're being set apart for a certain task or purpose. Now, obviously, it's not biblical anointing. But in the Bible, it was sort of similar, but also very different. In biblical times, anointing someone, they would do with oil. They would put this oil on their head, and they, they would set them apart. They would anoint them. But anointing was a sign <clears throat> that God was setting that person apart for a particular role, a God-ordained purpose. Well, in the Old Testament, there were a few roles and, and positions that people were anointed for. And I'm going to tell you the three main ones. Prophet, priest, and king. Okay? People were anointed for three main roles. Prophet, priest, and king. And if you go read the Old Testament, you read about a lot of prophets, you read about a lot of priests, and you read about a lot of kings. But when John boldly proclaims, to Jewish readers, that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Christ. He is saying that Jesus perfectly fulfills the roles of prophet, of priest, and of king, which further evidences the fact that he is, in fact, the Christ. I'll put it this way. If John were behind this pulpit this morning, first of all, he'd be a lot better preacher than this guy, all right? But if John were behind this pulpit this morning, I think that he would say the same thing to us even as believers. And that is to make Jesus exactly who he is. The Christ. Make Jesus exactly who he is. Make him the Christ. Whether it be once in salvation or daily in sanctification. So if you're taking notes, that's going to be our structure, alright? Three things we'll, we'll look at. <clears throat> Making Christ, Christ. The first one is this. To rest in his salvation. Making Christ, Christ. First, in resting in his salvation. We see this in his role <clears throat> as priest. I'm going to be explaining how Jesus fulfilled each of these roles, priest, prophet, king, and how scripture supports it, and how we apply those things today. But first, we're going to look at the role of priest. You know, when I say that word priest, my mind, it goes straight to, you know, Catholicism, because I think that's culturally where we hear the most about priests. Um, I got to see some friends of mine over the Christmas break, and I don't know what it is, but like guys that aren't really in church, whenever they hear that I'm in ministry, they're like, so you're like a priest? Like, no. You know, and, and I'm in a bubble here, so it sounds absurd to me, but they, they aren't, you know, church people. They're not believers, and so they have no idea. It gives me an opportunity to tell them why I don't need to be a priest, and we'll get there. 
But when I think of the priesthood, I think about the Catholic confessionals, things like that. And the reason they're called priests is because that word priest doesn't mean the guy that wears the black and the, the white thing here and, and gets up and stands behind and does the, the ordinances and stuff. That's not what that means. The word priest, it simply means that that person is a go-between. They're a mediator, right? They're an intercessor. A priest is a mediator, a go-between. That's why when they sit in the confessional booth, you got the person who's coming to confession here and the priest here, and he is the one that's taking their confession to God, Okay. They say their confession. How long has it been? Been this long? Here's my confession. Okay, I'm now going to, as a holy man, take it to God. And we're going to talk about why that's not a need in just a moment. But that's what that means. It means simply a go-between. The Old Testament priests did a similar thing, not in the way that, you know, confessional is done, but they also served as mediators between humans and God. Now, the word mediator, even in a secular sense, that word implies that there's conflict. Why? Who needs a mediator? Who needs a go-between? Someone that is a party way over here, there's a party way over here, and they need to be brought together. They need a go-between. And that's what a mediator does. A mediator is a person that keeps the peace. Think about a legal counselor or a marriage mediator. It brings two parties together that have conflict to then sort out that conflict. Okay, so how would the, the office of priest function as a mediator, a peacemaker? This is very important, church. God is holy. God is holy. He is sinless. He is perfect in every way. You are not. Why do you need to go between? Because you and God, apart from Jesus, are very, very far off. And you are at cosmic conflict. You are not at peace with God apart from Jesus. And so we desperately, just like the Old Testament saints, needed a go-between. Now specifically in the Old Testament, Priests made temporary peace between God and man. It was the priests who brought sacrifices on behalf of the people. Why? For the purpose of making peace. Now Jesus is our final mediator, our final go-between, and our great high priest. You don't have to come to confessional and expect me to do anything that Jesus can't already do for you. Specifically and mainly make peace for your sin. Jesus has done it. And we see that in God's word. The Old Testament sacrificial system anticipated the one who would fulfill that sacrificial system. You're going to see a couple of passages of scripture on the screen behind me. The first one is 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 5 and this is what it says. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. You see that right? Mediator Christ Jesus. Another one is Hebrews 9, 12 that really typifies this. Also says, <clears throat> he, that's Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves like an Old Testament priest, but by means of his own blood, thus securing not a temporary redemption, but an eternal redemption. Where was that sacrifice made? Calvary. And we just got done reading about it and studying it, right? Why don't we need a mediator, a human mediator like me, to help you go to God? Because God has come to us. Emmanuel, Christ with us. God with us. And that church is the good news of the gospel. We have a high priest, a great high priest, Christ. We must make him Christ. How do we do this? How do we make that great high priest your great high priest? Simply 
by trusting in his redeeming work at Calvary and leaning on his acceptance, his peace. We call him the Prince of Peace for a reason. He brought peace for you. Conflict with God has been done away because of the work of Jesus. In other words, he earned you because he paid the price. One way that we can do this, make Christ Christ, is the fact that your value isn't based on what you bring to the table, but what Jesus brought to the cross. That means that your joy shouldn't ebb and flow and rise and fall with your circumstances. Because the only circumstance that really matters happened 2,000 years ago, and that ain't changing. You know, David prayed in Psalm 51, verse 12. He said, God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. You know why he prayed that? Because he had slept with a woman that wasn't his wife and had her husband murdered. Circumstances ebb and flow, I get it. But David prayed a good prayer. And that was God, first of all, a prayer of repentance and confession, but he prayed, God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. We should do the same. Worshipfulness, faith in grace, not in our works. Our salvation wasn't earned by us, and therefore we can't lose it because of us. But there is a place for works when we consider not just that he is priest, but that Jesus the Christ is prophet. And that's the second one. Making Christ Christ. Obey his teaching. <clears throat> Obey his teaching. You know, growing up, I never really understood the role of biblical prophets. And maybe you don't either. Maybe you tend to gravitate more to the New Testament because when you get to the guy's names that you really don't understand and you're like, no disrespect, but I don't really understand your book. And so when you get to heaven, you're not going to be able to talk to this guy about anything. You ever thought about that? Uh, it's, it's the reality of it, right? Micah, I don't know what your book's about. Sorry. But listen, the Old Testament prophets' books are very, very important. They're very important. But when I think about biblical prophets, at least growing up, I had a tendency to think that, you know, biblical prophets were like fortune tellers. And maybe you're there and you think, do they just like predict the future and, and fortune tell? Well, this wasn't really the role of prophets in the Bible, even though they did foresee events that were to come. Prophets, very simply, a very short definition of a biblical prophet is that they were God's mouthpiece. They were God's mouthpiece. They spoke on behalf of God. They brought God's people God's words. They were tasked with speaking God's word to God's people. In the Old Testament, this included both proclaiming God's truth to his people and certainly revealing God's plans for the future of his people. But here's the thing. Jesus did this. Jesus did that too. The mouthpiece of God that said what was coming next. You see, Jesus, we read in John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word. Mouthpiece. It's the Word. And the Word became flesh. He's the Word of God. And the word was made flesh. We saw that in John's pro prologue. One verse that really typifies this, and we're going to see it on the screen, is Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. And this is what it says. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, listen to this. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, the mouthpieces. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, the greater prophet. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. You see, Jesus is the greatest prophet because he perfectly and most powerfully is the mouthpiece of God. You know why? He didn't just speak for God. He spoke as God. Isn't that wonderful? 
He is the final and the great prophet. If Jesus was and is about something, then God was and is about that same thing. And here's the instruction. If he's our prophet, you should be about the same thing too. You should be about the same things that Jesus was about. That means that if God's view of marriage and intimacy is this thing, that should be your view of marriage and intimacy. If God's view of wholesome speech is this thing, then that should be your view of the way that you talk to one another. If God says blessed are the peacemakers, you should be a peacemaker. God's view of the ego should be meekness and strength and so should ours. God's view of friendships is to encourage one another, to build up one another, to bear one another's burdens. That should be your view of friendship, of helping the poor, of ministering to orphans and widows, of the sanctity of life inside and outside of the womb, of sacrificial giving of your time, of your finances. God's view of forgiving other people. God forbid you hold a grudge because he didn't means that if God is our prophet, if Jesus is our prophet, <clears throat> we're not just about the things that he's about, but we also teach those same views of God to our children. It means that, husbands, you lead your spouse in these views, which means that you have to know these views, understand these views. It means that students, people that have friends, people that have co-workers, hopefully that's all of us, it means that you guide your peers in these views. To do that is to be an ambassador of Jesus, a representative, an ambassador of him. Be an ambassador of Jesus as Jesus was an ambassador of his father. We'll put it this way. Don't be a better ambassador for your hobbies, for your interests, and for your sports teams than you are an ambassador for your Lord. Jesus as the prophet did all things to bring glory to God. And that should be our role as well. And one way that we do this is by understanding that he is on the throne and you are not. Which is number three. Making Christ, Christ. Number three, submit to his authority as king. Submit to his authority as king. You know, at Christmas, which we got done celebrating just recently, we say, but I'm afraid that we rarely truly understand that Jesus is King of Kings. It's a great cultural thing to have in our ears and out of our mouths right now. Jesus is King of Kings. You better believe it. You see, God promised to David in 2 Samuel 7, 16, he said, David, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne, David, will be established forever. David was king, but guess what? Spoiler alert, David died. So what gives? God told David his throne to be forever, and yet David is a dead man. He's with God, but he is no longer on this earth. But this promise was fulfilled in the Messiah, the Christ, who was also given the title Son of David. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, in that boring old genealogy that Matthew writes, I say that tongue-in-cheek, it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. You know the next words? The son of David. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The son of David. You see, the son of David was foretold to be a ruler of God's people and also their deliverer, their savior. 
The Jews of Jesus' time expected a political king. You know, even we read in Jesus' story, when Jesus, when Jesus is hailed riding in on a donkey as the Messiah, Hosanna, here he comes. They thought that he was going to overthrow Rome, but he wasn't here to do that. Instead, Jesus conquered the real enemy, far more powerful than Rome, more powerful than any entity in this world that has a, a vice in your life. Sin is the real enemy, and Jesus did conquer that enemy. He did so at the cross of Christ. He conquered sin and death. He was killed, bruised for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, and then he was resurrected for our victory. As a result, Jesus has, as Matthew 28, 18 tells us, all authority, this is that great commission, right? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto him. Look at verse 31 of John 20 one more time. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And look at this last part. The Son of God. Do you know where the Son of God seats? On the throne of God. Means he's the king. Jesus isn't just the Christ. He is the king. A verse that really explains this is Ephesians 1 verses 19 through 21. It'll be on the screen. It says this. That God has displayed what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and listen seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the age to come you know what that means it means that Jesus is king and he's still king because his throne is eternal He's king. So what do we do with that? We saw that Jesus is priest. Jesus is prophet. Rest in his salvation. We obey his teaching. What does it mean to make Jesus king? It means, church, Christian, families. It means to make Jesus your supreme authority. To make him your supreme authority. That means in your household, Husbands and fathers, it should be evident to your spouse and children who is the king in your house. That means that sports is not the king. It means that entertainment is not the king. It means that your schedule is not the king. It means that your work is not the king. It means that your uh, school is not the king. It means that you are not the king means that Jesus is king. And your kids aren't idiots. They can tell who you've made king in your house. Not just in your household. It means to make Jesus the king in your heart. It means that we run our, our words that we say and the actions that we choose through a, an invisible and a metaphorical filter. If this is the bucket of all of our choices, our statements, our thoughts... We come into this world with a filter at the top that says, me. What does me the best? What does me the greatest good? But when we come to faith in Christ, we take away that filter and we put that filter beneath another filter and that filter says Jesus is king. And ultimately, if Jesus is king, <clears throat> though we fail, we should take victory comfort in the fact that the victory is won. You know, empires rise and fall. 
You know, even David's kingdom, David was the greatest king that ever lived. David's kingdom, when he died, his son Solomon took over. Solomon was a good king for a while. He fell apart. And you know what happened with Solomon's sons? They split the kingdom. Two generations. David's grandkids. David was a great and amazing king, but empires rise and fall. His grandkids messed it all up. And you know what their kids did? Continued to mess it all up. David's kingdom didn't, didn't just split two generations later. David's kingdom was in ashes a few generations later when the people of Israel were carried away to another land. You see, empires rise and fall. And this empire, this nation that we live in, one day it will be different. But the king of kings will never be. His throne is eternal. Jesus' rule and reign will see no end. You see, at Christmas we sing that song. So we talk about comfort and joy, right? That's why we can say those words. Because Jesus is king. And there's nothing that any circumstances in your life can do to, to blemish that. Comfort and joy eternal. I've written these things down that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What's the goal of the book of John? To give his readers life. Now here's the thing. There are people that were reading this for the first time and us today. You read these words. Everyone that is able to read is alive, aren't they? So what's he getting at? He's saying that there are people that read this thing that are dead men walking. People read the book of John every day, every Sunday, that are dead men walking. There are two ways that I see in our culture that we have dead men walking around us and even among us in this room. The first way is that perhaps you come here and you hear the word, but you're a dead man walking because you just play church. You have no intention of making Jesus Messiah, as making him Christ, of making him priest, prophet, and king, but you're interested in playing church. Hear me say this. You are a dead man walking. But these things are written that you may have life. That's the good news of the gospel. And my plea to you is to fall on your face and follow Jesus. But there's a second way that I see dead men walking among us, not just by playing church, about idolizing this life and its vanities. Isn't it ironic that the season that is supposed to be most about a Savior is most about me? Isn't that ironic? How twisted our world is. And I'll just let you in on a little secret. Christmas isn't the only day that's supposed to be about Jesus as Savior and Lord. That's a full-time job for us. But I fear that we struggle with that. And far too often we are tempted to make life about life, about the vanities. Christian, God has made you alive. Don't live like a dead man walking. Trust in Jesus as priest, your savior. Trust in Jesus as prophet, your teacher. And trust in Jesus as king, your victor. You know, the end of the year is approaching us, which means a new year will come. And it's, the new year is interesting because 
we have this subconscious thing that says we get a chance to start over, right? We call it a new year resolution. We have the subconscious chance to start over. I can think of no better resolution for us today as a church and you as an individual to make Christ, Christ. Make Christ, Christ. You've called on him countless times and called him that. But live a new year and escort in January 1 saying, Jesus, for real, this year I'm going to trust you as priest, as prophet, and as king. That's why John wrote it down. That you may have life. That you would trust in Jesus as the Christ. Because he's the Christ. Let's trust in him in that way today. Let's pray. We want to thank you for listening to this week's sermon. For more information, you can find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash the Spring Hill Baptist. We'd love for you to join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. as we seek to make much of Jesus and loving above all else.